0: The car emancipation rides majestic through our nation Bearing on its trains a story, liberty, a nation's glory Roll it along, roll it along Roll it along through the nation Freedom's car emancipation, roll it along have in this nation this element of domestic slavery. It is a matter of absolute certainty that it is a disturbing element. It is the opinion of all the great men who have expressed an opinion upon it that it is a dangerous element. We keep up a controversy in regard to it. That controversy necessarily springs from difference of opinions, and if we can learn exactly, we can reduce to the lowest elements what that difference of opinion is. We perhaps will be better prepared for discussing our different systems of policy that we would propose in regard to this disturbing element. I suggest that there is a difference of opinion reduced to its lowest terms. It is in no other way than a difference of opinion than that men who think slavery is wrong and those who do not think it's wrong. The Republican Party think it wrong. We think it is a moral, a social, and a political wrong. We think it is a wrong not confining itself merely to the persons or the states where it exists but it is a wrong in its tendencies, to say the least, that extends itself to the existence of the whole nation. Because we think it is wrong, we propose a course of policy that shall deal with it as a wrong. All right, well, welcome to the American Writers, 100 Pages at a Time podcast. That was from, I think it's the sixth Lincoln-Douglas debate. I closed the book. Yeah, it's the sixth Lincoln-Douglas debate. Uh, Lincoln's main... Um, uh, Lincoln's opening speech in that debate. So, in this episode, I'm going to complete this kind of uh, series on the Lincoln Douglas debates. It's part of the slogger series I'm doing on the writings of Abraham Lincoln. Um, and it actually closes up the first volume of the two volume collection put together by the Library of America, um, covering the writings and particularly the speeches of, of Abraham Lincoln. Um, so, it's, uh, you know, we've been talking about the Lincoln Douglas debates for a while. If you've been following along in this podcast, you kind of know the main arguments. And you also know that I thought in the first four debates that Lincoln often was on the defensive, that, that Douglass had a very, very clear principle. And he was able to er- er express it quite articulately. And it came, basically it came down to a handful of things, right? It came down to that the Republicans have kind of disrupted a, a system of national parties by catering to sectional interests, and that the re- And that the Republican Party, by trying to stop slavery in the territories uh, under the principle of natural of, well, trying to stop popular sovereignty from being the principle by which the determination is made whether slavery would be in the territories. They were basically being undemocratic and not fulfilling the wishes of the founders, right? And Lincoln's point of view, as he'll say throughout this period and and up into the, the time he's elected president, you know, you see it in the Cooper Union speech, and the New Haven, Connecticut speech, and a lot of other speeches he gave um, after the Lincoln Douglas debates when he kind of rose to national prominence. Is that the Founders had always believed it was right to regulate slavery in the territories. It was never controversial uh, for the signers of uh, the writers of the Constitution, the the, the founders of it. Uh, Jefferson helped write the Northwest Ordinance, even though he was a slaveholder. And so this idea that it would be purely up to the people who lived in the territories, whether they'd be slavery or not, was never the intention of the founders. There's that. But um, nevertheless, uh, I think Douglas just did better in those first four debates. That was that was kind of how I read them. Um, and it's in, the, it's in the fifth, sixth and seventh debate, though, that I think the tables really turn on Douglas. And Douglas doesn't really say anything new uh, I think his argument is pretty consistent Throughout the seven debates um, You know, that Lincoln Disrupted the the, the the two-party system Or the Republicans disrupted the two-party system And Lincoln is part of that That um, there's kind of a conspiracy Another part would be there's kind of a conspiracy To uh, kind of break up the weak party And the Democratic Party in Illinois Take it over with this abolitionized Republican Party there's his opposition to the Compton Constitution, which kind of was a way of showing he was not always with with this, his party in every way, right? Um, of course, you know politicians still do that. Of course, they'll say, you know, I voted against the president, even though he's of my party, just as kind of a campaign slogan. Douglas sort of does that with the Compton Constitution, and then I would say finally, it's kind of a support for Dred- the Dred Scott decision, right? And and as Lincoln in these last. De- de- to, to the last three debates pushes the the grounds of the debates much more to morality, much more to, I, I don't wanna know if I want to say racial justice, but he starts moving in the direction to be sure. Then Douglas talks a little bit more about um, racial equality. Now in earlier debates, he does this to kind of like pin abolitionism on Lincoln. Say, ah, Lincoln's for racial equality and Lincoln would then deny it. Say, see, I've said this. I, I still think there's a difference between the races you know, and all that. Um, But as Lincoln makes it not a debate, he he really is able to push it in the fifth, sixth, and seventh debates to be not a debate about these issues so much, but really at the heart of it, whether slavery is right or wrong. And if it's wrong, it should be national, or uh, this abolition should be national, or at least there shouldn't be spread. The slavery shouldn't be spread, right? And ultimately, slavery should be on a path to extinction. What that would take, it's not clear. Lincoln doesn't even know at this point, right? He's In the first inaugural address, even, he'll say, and when states have already seceded, he's going to say, not going to interfere with slavery where it exists. So he doesn't know what that path to kind of uh, extinction is. But if it's a wrong, at least we stop it from spreading, right? If it's a right, if it's a moral right, then then the Repu- then the Democrats are are right in a way that just let it spread, right? In fact, they don't go far enough because popular sovereignty still gives a choice. If it's a right, if it's a good thing. um, Now, he's confident his audience isn't going to say slavery is a good thing, right? It's going to be like a necessary evil or something, you know, that works in the South, but not not up here. But Lincoln wants to say it's either right or wrong. And whether it's right or wrong, we're going to make a policy based on that. And since we think it's wrong, uh, at the very least, we can stop its spread, Right. So Lincoln's then not in this position of defending, you know, like an abolitionist who, who Douglas is trying to pin him to, or maybe the most radical members of the Republican Party, which was a tactic he did in the earlier debates. He's just is able to really turn the tables on him. And I think this helps him uh, really win these debates in a way. Of course, uh, the Republicans win the popular vote in the house, local House elections as a result of this. Um, now, Douglas still wins. Douglas wins because the way it worked in those days, of course, is you had the elections for the state house and the state house would then elect the senators usually after that, right? So, you know, because the Senate campaigning, you reached out to the people because you wanted them to vote for d- these delegates to the state house who would vote for you, right? It's kind of like electrical, electoral college type of logic, right? Of course, you often had situations where the winner of the, the popular vote for you know party-wise wouldn't get the senate seat right and this was one of those cases in in 1858 and of course lincoln lost it but these debates helped thrust him onto national prominence Um, and i think it's because he's able to move the debates to the to this moral stage and um so what i'm going to do here is because i think there's not that much more to say about Douglas's point of view on these things. I, I think it, we've, we've kind of already covered his main points. And he just he ends up repeating himself a lot. I, I think some of these debates, like the fifth debate, gets very, very rank, rancorous. Some of these are kind of fun to read because they are quite, uh, you know, they really get in each other's face on these issues. And I think you can tell that Douglas really is uncomfortable talking about slavery or discussing slavery at, in moral terms at all. Right. For him, it's just a purely a matter of democracy for white people. White people decide you're going to have slavery or not, and, and that's all there is to it. Um, by Lincoln, by shifting it, you know, it's, it, it really puts Douglas on a defensive and he, he responds in that way. And, you know, you first see this, I think, in Douglas's rejoinder, his response to Lincoln's long speech in the fifth debate. But um, I want to focus, though, on what Lincoln says here. I, I thinking back on the last two episodes and maybe I focused too much on Douglas. Um, and not enough on on Lincoln's own words. So we're going to focus on Lincoln's words in these these debates, in these last three debates. And I'll and I'll, talk, I'll introduce you to these debates when they took place, where they were, and and all that stuff. All right. So let's start with the Galesburg debate. The Galesburg debate, the fifth of the Lincoln Douglas debates, held on October seventh, eighteen fifty eight. Now Galesburg was was farther north. It was. Um, you know, in the northern half, it was north of Springfield. And it, it's kind of a criticism that Douglas makes of, of Lincoln throughout the debates is that he kind of is more abolitionist the farther north he is and less so in the more in the south. And there's actually a, a bit of truth to that, I think, in the debate and that he's a little bit more careful and he talks about certain issues farther north. Maybe not, that's not that's not true in the later, in the last three debates where I think he is fairly consistently, up, you know, moralistic right um in in his approach to these issues um alton was south that's the last of the last of the debates and that, those are actually some of his best pros i think in that um, so anyways I, I think that becomes less of an issue in the later later debates but anyways, i just, I just want to focus on so th- this was one where where lincoln uh gave an hour and a half reply to to douglas right uh and douglas started out with kind of rehashing his old, his old arguments basically and lincoln spends a little bit of time dealing with him but then he really shifts to this to this moral argument right and i think it's a fairly well crafted speech he gives in in reply i want to focus on on five things that he says and, just, and also just like one great moment of oratory one, one a really powerful moment of oratory i think in, that i noticed in this speech um and where he starts is is by taking on the question of the declaration of independence right because uh, again, Douglas's point of view is like, our foundation is the Constitution, and Lincoln says, yeah, it is, and he's going to disagree about what the Constitution means on all sorts of issues, but he says, you know, really our, our founding document is the Declaration of Independence, right? And he, he does say pretty unambiguously here that that document, that, that statement, that all men are created equal, they have certain rights, life, liberty, the pursuit of happiness, that, that includes black people. Um, he doesn't say what that means necessarily in terms of policy, in terms of quality of citizenship or voting rights or any of these other issues. He says, but uh, the Declaration of Independence guarantees all people life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, right? And that makes slavery unjust, and that's in the founding document. So I think that's one of the, some part of the significance of Lincoln here is he shifts the focus onto the Declaration of Independence and not just. Not just the debate about the Constitution and the courts and, and and all that stuff, where you can where the conservatives on the courts can sort of win out. But actually, this issue of conservatism is something he takes on on the Cooper Union speech, where he directly accuses um, the the Democrats of being not really the real or the Douglas people, even with popular sovereignty, not being the true radicals. But um, I'm not sure which side we want to come down on that. But, you know, definitely, I, w- I want to suggest that by shifting to the Declaration of Independence, it allows him to have a more broad and moralistic reading of American history instead of just about like the Constitution, which, which was a pact with slaveholders. let's let's be let's be frank. Now, Lincoln doesn't provide any evidence that the Declaration of Independence meant to include black people or, or that Jefferson or the signers of it meant to include black people. He just says you can't find any statements against it. Um, so. Um, but nevertheless, it's, it's, I think it's an important pivot in, in the debate. Um, he does take on, the second point I want to mention here is he takes on the National Party issue in, in a more proactive way here than I think he did in the previous debates. In the, in the previous ones either ignored it or, or kind of uh, danced around it. In this one, he just takes it on and actually kind of turns it around and says, maybe it's the Democratic Party that's the real becoming the real sectional party. And but that doesn't really matter, right? If you're right, if your position is right, and only people in one part of the country are attuned to it and can hear it and and appreciate it, that may mean, in effect, you're, you're only getting votes in one part of the country. It doesn't make you a sexual party. It doesn't mean you're only speaking out to sexual interests. You're you know. So he's saying the Republican Party is speaking for the nation as a whole. It's just not being listened to. It's not being heard in part of the country. He said... What has always been the evidence brought forward to prove that the Republican Party is a sectional party? The main one was that in the southern portion of the Union, the people did not let the Republicans proclaim their doctrine among them. This has been the main evidence brought forward, that they had no supporters or substantially none in the slave states. The South have not taken hold of our principles as we announced them, nor does George Douglas now grapple with those principles. We have a Republican state platform laid down in Springfield in June last stating our position, all the way through the questions before the country. We are now far advanced in this canvas. And then he goes on and says, like, if, if the judge, Judge Douglas, has any opposition to these principles, he can attack them. He can, but he doesn't. He just says, well, you're not, you're, you're, you're sectional. right? And then he kind of re- turns it around and says, well, actually, the Democrats are becoming more and more the party of the slave states. And they're going to be a sectional party and, and even a regional party pretty soon. So that is the one part in this debate where he really kind of is responding to an issue that's been dogging him throughout, throughout the base, but I think he does it really well. Um, basically, um, you know, turning it on, on uh, the democracy. Um, now on the question, the next thing I want to point out here is that he really does very early in the speech. Um, it's only six pages into it of, of what's maybe eight pages into what's like a 24-page speech. So what's in the first half is he really turns to the issue of of the morality of slavery and makes that the cornerstone of the conversation. And it's going to remain so for the rest of the Lincoln-Douglas debates. So it kind of has two parts to it. One is he he challenges, well, first he kind of sets up the terms and he says, well, either it's right or it's wrong. And if it's wrong, we should do something about it. And if it's right, that's going to imply certain policies as well. But what... Judge Douglas never says if it's right or wrong. So he kind of challenges them. Once setting that ground, he challenges Douglas to say is slavery right or wrong, All right? Which of course puts him in an awkward position running for statewide office in Illinois where you're going to have different views in the south and the, and the north, right? So the whole time Douglas has been saying I'm the consistent one, right? And Lincoln's been look wishy-washy. And now Lincoln's able to to find a terms of debate which forced Douglas to to make a, a, a position that's going to be unpopular in part of the state or I mean, at least that's how i read it but it also uplifts the debate into into a moral debate which douglas is not prepared to engage in so that's the first part trying to pin right or wrong the right or wrong of slavery onto onto douglas and the second is to confess his principle on this quote i now confess myself to belonging to that class in the country who contemplate slavery as a moral, social, and political evil, having due regard for its actual existence among us and the difficulties of getting rid of it in any satisfactory way, and to all the constitutional obligations which have been thrown about it, but nevertheless desire a policy that looks to the prevention of it as a wrong and hopes to end it, and hopefully to a time when the wrong may come to an end." In quote. So that's his position clearly stated. Slavery is wrong. We can't really get rid of it now for constitutional reasons and practical reasons. But we need to create a context in which it will be gone at some point in the future, right? Um, how that's going to happen is not clear. But at least he starts, he leads with it being a wrong. And I think that's an important change. Um, and that's, that's why I think this debate gets gets elevated quite a lot, at least from Lincoln's side. Um, so that's the third thing. The fourth thing would be his, I think, his best attack on Dred Scott. And I, I think the, how he, he kind of comes at Dred Scott in a way here is... Again, in a way that disadvantages, he's trying to disadvantage Douglas in his traditional arguments he'd been making up to this point. And it comes down to this, you know, like, Douglass' opinion has sort of been like, well, the Supreme Court knows better, right? Who are you to counteract the highest court in the world, right? The highest, uh, you know, uh, decision-making body in the world or whatever. Okay. Um, and that, that's hard to argue against, right? There is a, some authority. There, there's constitutional authority to the Supreme Court. And what Lincoln does is he kind of gives the devil his due, and he says, okay, what's the logic of the Supreme Court here? And it's that property rights can't be restricted, slaves are property, therefore their, their movement into the, into the territories can't be restricted, right? Well, then, once you accept that, then you, you're still left with the moral question, should slaves be kept as property, right? And that's a moral wrong that transcends, a moral right or wrong question that transcends the, you know, the, the Supreme Court and its own judgment. So he moves it to a higher plane, right? Douglas is always saying, well, the Supreme Court's always been the highest kind of law on the land. And Lincoln says, no, there's there's kind of a higher one. You know, you could say divine law. He, he uses that word sometimes, but, you know, his religious views are, I think, are kind of complex. Maybe we'll get to them at some point in the series. Um, but at least kind of a moral law. And in doing this, Lincoln's able to make Douglas look like a bit of a bootlicker, a bootlicker of authority, right? He says, like, he he can't say whether he thinks slavery is right or wrong. So he just, you know, does what he just accepts the Supreme Court says without any questioning. Now, he, of course, adds to this something he has been saying previously in the debates, um, which isn't a new argument here but that is essentially that the dred scott decision all it needs to do is a follow-up decision where the question comes up can you then bring slaves into into free states right of course dred scott was originally in the wisconsin territory or maybe minnesota some other territories like that uh, i think it was wisconsin but at this point wisconsin's already a state right it became a state in 1848 so uh but that was dealing with the time it was a territory now, the question could come up, you know, what about a state? Can someone bring their property into a state? And Lincoln doesn't see it as a really big jump in logic to then say, well, of course, right? And then at that point, that, from that point on, slavery's national, right? right. You could maybe a state could say you can't buy or sell slaves. You can't um, maybe regulate how you use them or whatever. But, you know, there would be nothing stopping cotton planters from moving to Illinois and buying land and, and, and bringing their slaves with them and having, doing what they want with them right so that's the that's that's kind of an old argument that he repeats here uh, but I think he does kind of push push it in a more you know push the debate to ground that's more advantageous to him um, and then the, the final thing I want to say before getting to what I think is just a great moment of oratory is he begins to talk about the future of the nation and and race and I, I just think it's a fascinating kind of uh, even prescient vision um, because Douglas is talking about incorporating all these other parts of the world into the United States, right? And he says, well, of course, we're going to do that on the principle of popular sovereignty, right? We're going to bring in Cuba. We're going to bring in, uh, I don't know, some other territory, right? More, steal more from Mexico, whatever it is. And Lincoln says, you know, who's going to be voting <laughs> in, in those places? They're not, well, mostly white people, right? At least not white people by the standards of, of the time. Um, he even says at one point, when we shall get Mexico, I don't know whether the judge will be in favor of the Mexican people when we get get with the settling of the question for themselves and all others, because we know that the judge has a great horror for mongrels. And I understand that the people of Mexico are most decidedly a race of mongrels. And he goes on about this. Right. But he seems to envision a future of, a, of an American empire that's going to be racially much more complex than it, than it even was in the 18. 18- in, in the 1850s, and one that's going to exacerbate conflict over over slavery when, and, and more deeply over race. And I, I think that's how he ends the debate. I think it's really quite prescient in a way, because that's what empire would eventually do in the United States, right? And I got this. I read a great book called uh, "Race Over Empire" or something. It's a very short history book. Um, I think it's based on a dissertation. Uh, I forgot the author's name. Of it, Um, but what he argues is a lot of the opposition to empire in the years after the Civil War came from like white Southerners who didn't want more colored people in the nation, right? And were fearful of that. So it's kind of an extension of kind of a Jim Crow logic to actually stop the spread of empire, which is very different from how when we learn about empire from kind of a European or Western civ perspective, say, well, of course, empire was about racial dominance. It was like the power of whites over the rest of the people, right? But in the U.S. There's, you know, there's fear of bringing these people in. You know, what if Cuba becomes a state? What if Dominican Republic becomes a state? They're going to be voting, you know, senators and, and congresspeople, and they're going to be making policy. And so there's a lot of uh, white supremacist hostility to empire uh, in the later half of the 19th century out of that. And I think Lincoln seems to see it sort of sees it coming here. So anyways, I, my favorite part of this debate, the last thing I want to say about the fifth debate is what I think is my favorite part of it, uh, comes towards the end. And, and here's what he says. What he said. Um, and I do think, I repeat though, I said it on a former occasion, that Judge Douglas and whoever like him teaches that the Negro has no share, humble though it may be in the Declaration of Independence, is going back to the air of our liberty and independence, and so far as in him lies, muzzling the cannon that thunders its annual joyous return, that he is blowing out the moral rights around us when he contends that whoever wants slaves has a right to hold them, and he is penetrating so far as all lies in his power, the human soul, and eradicating the light of reason and the love of liberty, when he is in every possible way preparing the public mind by his vast influence for making the institution of slavery perpetual and national. Quote, and that's just a great summation of, of how Lincoln is trying to uh, lift this debate to be one about really general principles about right and wrong and morality and the nature of liberty in America. So um, a really important debate. If you had to just read one of these, I actually think the fifth or the seventh debate would, would do it for you. Um, I, I do think it's worth reading, reading them all in, in a package. But uh, I really like the fifth debate. I think especially the Lincoln parts of it are are, are quite nice. Um, uh, Douglas's rejoinder is pretty contentious, though, and that's fun to watch. I actually listened to these reenactments of it, too, and they did a really good job of of showing how um, contentious the the Douglas responder was. You see how he was kind of taken aback by the places that Lincoln took the debate. So, anyways, the sixth debate, the sixth Lincoln-Douglas debate, was in Quincy, Illinois. Quincy was in the in the Missouri border, um, kind of the center west. These were chosen, I think, not because they were important towns. These are all small, relatively small towns. I think they were chosen to be representative from parts of of the country. Right? You had uh, the South, um, two in the center, center west, kind of two in and two in the north. Um, one in the northeast, one in like kind of, no, one in the northwest, one in this kind of the center, east. Um, the only place that's not really represented is the, is the true center around Springfield. But I suppose that's where a lot of the, um, I guess that was closer to the capital, so those those people were already in in on the debate, I suppose. Um, but I think that's why they were chosen. But Quincy uh, was the one that was the farthest west. Um, it's on the Missouri border, so I don't know what quite what the voting population was like in Quincy, but they, of course, they are bordering a slave state, uh, right on the Mississippi River, so that may have affected the the voters in, in Quincy. Um, now, this debate uh, it starts with Lincoln, goes for an hour, then Douglas for an hour and a half, and then and then Lincoln has a half hour rejoinder. Um, so there, there's actually um, a lot of re- repetition, as always in these debates. Um, he's, he spends some time early on in his opening statement here, responding to kind of a, something. Douglas goes back to at the end of the, or at the, the at the his in his rejoinder in the in the previous debate in the Galesburg debate. He he kind of brings up social equality, and what Douglas is trying to do here. And what he does consistently throughout the debate is, is as soon as Lincoln said, I think black people have certain rights in the Declaration of Independence, Douglas says, well, then you're, you believe in social equality. And, and basically the impl- implication there, sometimes directly stated, sometimes not, is that you're essentially in, an abolitionist or in, in allegiance in some kind of deal with the abolitionists, right? And so Lincoln, again, has to kind of go back to this question of, of, of parsing what he feels about socially, social equality. We already know this. Um, We've come across this before, so it's not going to be a surprise that that Lincoln sticks firm here. And I I think that's why it's still better than some of his earlier responses. That he sticks firm to the Declaration of Independence, granting certain natural rights. He says uh, he actually has to quote himself. He quotes himself previously. I have never said anything to the contrary, but I hold that, notwithstanding all this, there's no reason in the world why the Negro is not entitled to all the rights enumerated in the Declaration of Independence the right to life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. I hold that he is as much entitled to these as white men. I agree with Judge Douglas that he may not be my equal in many respects, certainly not in color, perhaps not in intellectual or moral endowments, but in the right to eat the bread without leave of anyone else, which his own hand earns, he is my equal and the equal of Judge Douglas and the equal of every other man, end quote. Now the language there, it's it's a bit unfortunate, you could say, from a modern standpoint, he's certainly not social egalitarian but at the same time he you know he says perhaps not in my equal right he he doesn't say they're not i mean he does say just maybe perhaps like i don't quite know um he he more strongly sits on the on the side of social equality i think but he rested on the natural rights of the declaration of independence um at the same time as he says you know i wasn't saying you know social equality in every single aspect like voting rights for instance He earlier said, um, I I expressly declared my own feeling that would not admit a social and political equality between the white and black races, and that even if my own feelings would admit of it, I still know that the public sentiment of the country would not, and that such a thing would be an utter impossibility or substantially that. Now, even this is a little uh, carefully chosen words where he says, you know, I'm not calling for social and political equality. It doesn't really mean he doesn't think it's not deserved. He's just saying it's not politically feasible. It's not likely to be popular. It's not going to happen, right? So will, he's not going to come out and support it. Um, his, his language here is 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 very carefully chosen to kind of open up, um, you know, really a, a backing of social equality, right? So he's not as... Um, I guess, reactionary on this question as he was in some of the earlier debates, I think. He does quote himself a lot, um, and I don't like when he does that. I, I think it, it kind of diminishes the debates when these people have to quote themselves. I understand why it's happening, though, because these aren't televised. You know, not everyone in always has seen them. You might just go to one of these, right? And and you might hear a rumor that, oh, Lincoln said this. I want to hear what he responds. Of course, you end up responding by quoting yourself. Now, he spends quite a bit of time dealing with this, this issue. Um, of, of social equality and the natural rights. And then he moves on to that opening thing, the, the passage I opened up this podcast with, this episode with, which was this challenge to the Democratic Party and to the nation as a whole to deal with slavery as a right or wrong before talking about policy. Like before you could talk about something like popular sovereignty, um, a euphemism if there ever was one. You need to acknowledge, is slavery right or wrong, and develop your policies, your ideas, your response to it from there, right? So if, if slavery's wrong, as we said it, you know, we're probably being too modest almost in the response we're chosen, we're, we're, we're pursuing. If slavery's right, there's no logical reason to restrict it anymore, right? And these are, you gotta make a decision here. And he's really trying to push Douglas and the Democrats in Illinois to, to make that choice. Now, Lincoln argues it's wrong in three ways, right? And this is, he says, it's like, Democrats, do you agree that it's wrong in these three ways, right? Or do you think it's just wrong in one of these ways or maybe just two of them? Um, that's that's the challenging levels to Douglas. And those three areas are moral, social, and political, right? So one covers, I guess, like divine law. I guess the moral is the divine law. Um, the social is um what, the, the interpersonal having a lot to do with labor, which is going to be an issue in the seventh debate quite a lot, is is the the question of labor and the one's right to labor. I mean, that's the way you could talk about it as a social wrong, right? Stealing the bread that someone else make, as I said it before. And then a political wrong, right? How is it a political wrong? Well, Lincoln covers all this throughout these debates. It's wrong in that it, it, it divides the country, right? It's wrong in that it... Betray, especially the way it's been pursued since the 1850s or since 1850, it's betrayed the the goal of the founders, right? It's it corrupted the Constitution, right? There's there's all these ways you can see it as a political wrong too. But those are the three he he, he highlights, and he questions the Democratic Party, saying the um I'll add that this. That if there is any man who does not believe that slavery is wrong in the three aspects that I have mentioned, or in any one of them, that man is misplaced not to leave us. He's talking here about the Republicans. He's saying, if you're a Republican, you believe slavery is wrong in all three. And then, so what about you, Dems? What about you? And that's his, his opening debate here. And it's uh, really it's a series of really succinct, or it's, it's really one one challenge to to Douglas that he, one response he's looking for. And he really doesn't doesn't get it, and and the the Lincoln rejoinder here is, um, you know, there's interesting things in it, but I don't really have time to to talk about it. I don't want to go line by line through these debates, obviously, but it's got a, um, you know, there's a lot of space there for for Lincoln to kind of bring up other issues because Douglas just fails so utterly in responding to the the core issues that that Lincoln brought up. Especially this challenge to see slavery as a moral, political, and social wrong. Um, so, this leads us to the final Lincoln Douglas debates, the seventh one. This one was in Alton, so this was uh, down the Mississippi River from Quincy. I'm, I'm not quite sure how far, but um, about, what, a quarter of the way from, uh, down the Mississippi, down that Illinois. That, the Mississippi just borders with the state of Illinois, if you think of it, kind of break them into four chunks. It's about a quarter of that south to Alton so it's kind of in the southwest um, part of the state but actually it's a it's actually southeast of, of Quincy because that's where the river kind of kind of moves eastward uh, so it's moving farther south right so if you take Douglas's earlier accusations you'd expect Lincoln to get kind of softer uh, on on slavery here and I don't think he does I, I think he he sticks to the kind of the way he's been coming at it in these last few debates and which is to focus on the moral questions, the question of, of is slavery right or wrong. Um, and that that is something that has to be resolved and thought about before we, we actually start talking about policies like popular sovereignty, right, which um, you know, it's, it's it's a really good euphemism, I have to say, popular sovereignty. You know, who, who doesn't agree with it, right? In fact, in reality, it was you know, basically an excuse to try to expand, expand Slavery to the territories, um, but anyways, uh, this debate we start with Douglas's hour speech, then we have Lincoln for an hour and a half, and then uh, the the debates end with uh, Douglas's final rejoinder. So if you're keeping track, Douglas got the first word in the debate, and he gets the last word in the debate. That was just the way these were were structured. Um, so, I just want to talk about for this one. I just want to talk about Lincoln's reply to Douglas because I think again, Douglas doesn't say too much you new. Know, his arguments well known by this point, and he's very good at repeating it. Uh, he just sort of mix them up a little bit and, and focus on different ones. But he's a, you know, it's a little bit changed by just the nature of the debate changing. But but you know, he like even here, yes, he kind of tries to accuse Lincoln again of being a social egalitarian, even though Lincoln just dealt with that in the Quincy debate. <clears throat> but uh, I think Douglas does, does believe that in Alton, he's going to have a more pro Southern audience, I suppose. So that's why he wants to bring it up. But I, I read through Lincoln's reply, the, the, the hour and a half reply. And the way I see the logic of it, I think it's a really well-formed speech. And and I think there are, there are some kind of moments where he's responding to, to Douglas, but I think he had a really clear plan of what he wanted to do in this response. Um, and that is, you know, he kind of talks about it first as, a, as the political wrong, a, a political wrong, and then talks about it as a social wrong, right? He doesn't quite get to it as a moral wrong. I think that's maybe a little bit too abstract um, and maybe too religious, and it gets them to places that are a little less comfortable to talk about. He does to say it's it, slavery's wrong in these three ways, moral, social, and political, but it's easier for him to talk about the political. Uh, pretty easy for him to talk about the social, uh, how it's a moral wrong is is something he, at least at this point, he sort of dances around a little bit still. Um, but the way he talks, but he starts by talking about political, the political history of, of, of slavery. And he starts with the Declaration of Independence, right? Because that's, that's where he's starting you know, in, in all his judgments about the politics of, of slavery. He starts with the Declaration of Independence, right? And he says... In this speech. I think the authors of that notable instrument intended to include all men, but they did not mean to declare that all men equal in all respects. They did not mean to say that all men were equal in color, size, intellect, moral development, or social capacity. They defined with tolerable distinctions in what they did consider all men created equal. Equal in certain inalienable rights, among which are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. This they said, and this they meant. They did not mean to assert the obvious untruth, that they were all actually enjoying that equality, nor yet that they're about to confer it immediately upon them. In fact, they had no power to confirm such a boon. They meant simply simply to declare the right so that the enforcement of it might follow as fast as circumstances should permit. They meant to set up a standard maximum for free society that should be familiar to all, constantly looked to, constantly labored for, and even though never perfectly attained, constantly approximated, and therefore constantly spreading and deepening its influence and augmenting the happiness and valor of life to all people of all colors everywhere. So really great principles here, a really great interpretation of the Declaration of Independence. Uh, Seeing it as this, an open, like an open principle that that's meant to eventually include all people, women, blacks, immigrants, everyone. Right. All right. That's that's where he starts. Right. Right. then he, then he, But of course, Douglas is, is working within the Constitution and the law and the Supreme Court and all that. So next, uh, Lincoln moves to the Constitution and he really previews what he's going to do at the Cooper Union address and say, okay, let's talk about the Constitution. What did the people who write the Constitution feel about slavery? And he says several things. Um, it, he goes on extra here quite a lot of his speech talking about, um, where he's trying to argue that the Springfield platform the Republican Party platform is consistent with the Constitution and the founders um, But what it comes down to is essentially is <clears throat> That That slavery is mentioned obliquely in the Constitution three times, right? Uh, future to slave law uh, the three-fifths clause and um, uh, the, ab- the prohibition of the eventual prohibition of the slave trade Right as you, we talked about this way back in the Du Bois series of course, but of course, uh, the Constitution said Congress won't limit the importation of, of you know, of, of slaves. Essentially, they didn't use the word, but uh, until 1808, and then Congress in 1808 did do that. Jefferson signed that law. Uh, that 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 banned the slave trade, the international slave trade, after 1808. Um, so obviously, and then you have the Northwest Ordinance, right, which was voted on and agreed upon by many of the same people who, who wrote the Constitution. So clearly, the founders saw slavery as something that should be restricted and limited and, and gradually gotten rid of in some way, right? They, and, they, and he admits they didn't know how. And he admits they didn't know how, but he, he, the way he sees it is they kind of set in the documents and in the government the process by which slavery will eventually be eliminated, right? Right. So that's, that's kind of what he un, 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 unveils here. He does a lot better job of it, I think, in the Cooper Union speech, but he, he begins that. Um, then he reissues, then he kind of goes back and studies, well, what does all this have to do with the territorial question, right? Because that's why we're all here. That's why we're almost at war with one another. That's why people are fighting and killing each other in Kansas. It's the territorial question. And he rehashes it all, and, and again, we don't have to say too much more about it, but he has a very interesting passage where he kind of transitions into the social question and, and the question of what kind of country do we want to have in the future, right? Do we want to be this divided house in which half of you know, half the country is based on a labor system of tyranny and domination and, and violence, or do we want something new, right? What, is that, what could that new nation be? Here's what he writes, said, right? Now, irrespective of that moral aspect of this question, as to whether there is a right or wrong in enslaving a Negro, I am still in favor of our new territories being in such a condition that white men may find a home, may find some spot where they can better their conditions, where they can settle upon new soil and better their, their lives, their condition in life. I am not mere in favor of this, of, of this, not merely for our own people who are born amongst us, but as an outlet for free white people everywhere this world over, in which Hans and Baptiste and Patrick and all of the people from all the world may find new homes and better their condition in life." Um, now it goes without saying, based on that quote, that he doesn't see the frontier as a place for free blacks. Right? He says he insists on whiteness here as it, but um, free labor. That's the key point here, right? So yeah, it's a bit it's a bit frustrating that he does so insist clearly insist on the frontier being a domain of white people. And of course, there is a big faction in the Republican Party, a big part of the free soil contingent who opposed slavery in the territories not because they were anti-slavery necessarily or or, or social egalitarians, but simply because they did think the land on the West should be um, essentially reserved for, for white people. And, you know, Lincoln has political realities he has to address. And, I, you know, I'm not here to idealize him either. Um, um, but... I'm saying here, I think he's using this to transition to the, so, the broader social question, which is going to get to the social wrong of slavery, ultimately, right. Because if there's a need for an outlet for, quote, free white people everywhere, to find new homes, to better conditions of life, to find a spot where through their labor, through their efforts, through their struggle, they can better their conditions, right? That is presented, that pursuit of, of autonomy, of independence, of labor is, is presented as, as a good, right? Now, of course, here he's qualifying as white, but, you know, you don't have to. I mean, you know, who knows what he would have said, you know, after, if he, if he had been around for Reconstruction, right? We'll, we'll get to that, I suppose, but, you know, uh, obviously the radical Republicans eventually said that this right to free labor includes black people. Right? So that's that's part of the Republican Party that, that Lincoln's, of course, talking to in 1858. So he then gets to the question, just like a page after that, where he asks, asks the question directly, can expanding slavery make us freer? If that's the goal of our nation, if our goal of our nation is freedom and democracy and, and all that, in what way does expanding slavery make us freer? He asks, has anything ever threatened the existence of the Union save and except for this very institution of slavery? What is it that we hold most dear amongst us? Our own liberty and prosperity? What has ever threatened our liberty and prosperity save and except this institution of slavery? It is true. How do you propose to improve the conditions of things by enlarging slavery? By spreading it out? By making it bigger? You may have a wen or a cancer upon your person and not be able to cut it out unless you bleed to death, but surely it is not no way to cure it to engraft it and spread it over your whole body. End quote, right? So um then, then he has, he 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 takes on another aspect of the social question, the social wrong of slavery, and 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 that is the wrong of seeing property in people. The social wrong in seeing property in people. And this, of course, is a way for him to attack slavery but also attacked the Dred Scott decision which was based on the principle that slaves were were property like any other property so he, he attacks this this idea that slavery slaves is not just is really not just any other type of property let me see the quote here um, yeah he's mostly responding here to Democratic and Douglas's views on it but he essentially says no it, it's it can't it can't be just like any other property right so the dress decision is faulty on that um and the and that's kind of it he, he kind of gets to the question of the social evil and i think this is a well-constructed essay that starts with the political question and very very gradually and subtly through some nice little twists along the way he pushes his listeners to hearing him say slavery is a is a social wrong it's 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 bad as a way of conceiving of property it's a bad, bad as a way of conceiving of labor or of, of freedom for not just you know, slaves but even for, for us right? um, one way he puts this and I, I think it's a really interesting way of putting it, uh, is he kind of sees it in broad historical terms he says it is the eternal struggle between those two principles right and wrong throughout the world They are the two principles that have stood face to face from the beginning of time and will ever continue to struggle. The one is the common right of humanity and the other is the divine right of kings. It is the same principle on which whatever shape it develops itself. It's the same spirit that says, you work and toil and earn bread and I'll eat it. No matter in what shape it comes, whether from the mouth of a king who seeks to bestride the people of his own nation and live by the fruit of their labor, or from one race of men as an apology for enslaving another race, it's the same tyrannical principle. And and that's more or less how we, he ends his debate. He, you know, he says a few more things as wrap-up, but that's the heart of it. So, you know, he really closes on slavery as a, as a social wrong, Right? And that's that's Lincoln's comments on the Elton debate. And, and that's all I want to say, really, about the Lincoln-Douglas debates. I, I think they're really uh, a lot of fun to read. I think they... They took me in places I didn't know. I've never read them before, actually. I, I think I've probably read passages of them before, but I never sat down and said, you know, read them and listened to them and watched them performed. Um, so I learned a lot about like Lincoln's thinking at the time. I learned a lot about um, how Lincoln evolved as a speaker and a debater, even over the course of a few weeks. I, I think that's quite striking is how he was able to to um, uh, go from being, I think, basically defeated in some of those early debates to, to really being on the high ground and, and dominating the debates and then the later part of them. And um, of course, the historical significance of the Lincoln-Douglas debates we know, right? They, Lincoln loses the election of 1858, Douglas, Douglas won, uh, but eventually Lincoln had these published almost immediately afterwards. In, in 1859, he started to get these published and it would be through these debates that the South would get to know Lincoln during the election of 1860, when he gets chosen as the Democrat Republican candidate um, in 1860, partially because of the, of the Cooper Union speech, which, of course, was a lot of those arguments were worked out in the Lincoln-Douglas debates. The Cooper Union speech was more of a national audience for him, in, you know, taking place in New York. Um, but it when the South read these Lincoln-Douglas debates, they they saw Lincoln as unacceptable, of course. And that's what, when he was elected president, um, in, in 1860, they some Southerners saw no choice but to to leave the Union. So that's the overall significance of these debates, of course. And I think they're just great examples of of, of political oratory, especially on Lincoln's side. Um, but I mean, Douglas has his moments too. Um, yeah, a lot of fun, um, useful to 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 review. And I think we can, there's a lot we can learn from them. But I don't know. I'm probably missing a lot. I'm probably just skimming the surface of these debates. I've only talked about. Um, them for an hour. So let me know what you think. Uh, if you've read the Lincoln-Douglas debates or listened to them or, or partook in any kind of Lincoln-Douglas debates or Lincoln-Douglas style debates. I know it's a whole format of debating that's quite popular in debating societies. If you know anything about that, please share your thoughts about it. Um, but yeah, leave your comments below or send me an email at 100 pagescastgmailcom at um, when I come back, I'll be starting the next volume of, of Lincoln's writings. So they'll, they'll, that book covers 1859 to, to 1865. Um, I'll just do one year, an episode, right? So um, that, that's, that's about 100 pages each episode. So they're pretty well spaced out. Um, the, the next one, yeah, the Cooper Union speech is in 1860. So the next one will have um, some of his touring, his campaigning, for Republican candidates, and and after Lincoln double space, he did some kind of campaigning around and and giving speeches in the Midwest. We'll look at some of those speeches. He gives a really interesting one in Milwaukee um, on agriculture, which I'm really excited to talk about. I have a lot I want to say about that one. Um, So anyways, if you have that volume, you can look ahead, or if you just kind of look around for what his speeches were in 1859, um, you can do that. So... Anyways, that's it. That's it for 1858. That's it It, it for the Lincoln-Douglas debates. Um, next time, 1859. So thanks, as always, for listening, and I'll, I'll see you when I get back.